Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Au, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shuyen Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Is VR dead? There was a time when VRs felt, you know, very inevitable. I mean, obviously there was the Oculus, there was the PS uh, VR, and of course, you know, we all remember when Mark Zuckerberg kind of promoted the metaverse and how everybody would be part of a seamless dimension where we'll always be in virtual reality. Now we're all cracking jokes and obviously, you know, Facebook stock is dropping because a lot of folks don't believe that the metaverse is happening anytime soon, at least in the context of the stock market dynamics. For myself, you know, I think about it obviously at different layers, right? The metaverse is a very big phrase. One concept is about virtual reality. The other aspect is about augmenting current reality. The third is the fact that there's a single operable and interoperable universe that people can interact with each other. And lastly, uh, the fact that there are economics involved with that universe. For me, when I think about those individual concepts, VR, augmented reality, interoperability, and economics, for myself, I'm actually bullish about three of those four dynamics, virtual reality, augmented reality, and the economics of it. The part that is least believable to me is the fact that there's interoperability, at least to the magnitude that is done in science fiction. In science fiction, the multiverse, for example, in Ready Player One is one where everybody is in it and everybody can play it and effectively, you know, it's free to a giant extent. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to it where I think you can imagine monopoly power or monopolist companies able to provide that at scale with economies of scale and obviously making it as wide with as much IP possible plugged in so that you could be modeling any avatar or character or storyline you want. That's why it was such a joke and also very believable when Facebook said, hey, we want to be meta because the truth is for so many folks, you know, even if you're not using Facebook, you're probably using Instagram or WhatsApp. And so the fact that most of our human communications happen within this platform actually makes it viable, I think, for it to happen on something like Ready Player One. That being said, the reality from my perspective is that it's most likely that the metaverse will become the multiverse, that there'll be multiple metaverses that are each championed by a specific big player, for example, Apple or Meta or some future company. There will be limited interoperability between each network, but full operability within those networks. And so brands will have the power to choose which universe they want to be part of. For example, Marvel may want to be part of one or two of the universes. Some may choose to be 
open access. Some may choose to be exclusive. For example, Halo is only on the Microsoft system for Xbox and PC. Other games may choose to be Steam-like, that they are available on multiple universes. I understand the bearishness because within a short time frame after the metaverse was announced and popularized by Facebook, there was the epic stock market crash. And so I think people just look at it as cause and effect. That being said, you know, I think I'm obviously bearish on this in the short term, for example, within the next five years, but I'm actually bullish on this over the next 50 years. So why am I bearish on the next five years? The reasons are clear. The computing power isn't really there yet for comfortable headsets. There's a lot of iteration needed on the hardware side for it to get better and better and better. And lastly, there's a lot of people who just don't get it. They get motion sickness. This is not used to the user interface. Yet, I'm a true believer. I've owned the Oculus Go, the Oculus Quest 1, the Oculus Quest 2. I still remember my first experience using the Oculus Go. And what was interesting was I was in Boston and I put it on. Obviously, I was playing around the different mechanisms and the different UX and the different apps. And I ended up in basically Google Map Street View. And basically, I was going home to my childhood home in Singapore. I went to Petra Jordan, obviously popularized by Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. And traveling down a valley, I was walking around in Germany in Google Street View. Um, suddenly, like two hours passed by, right? And, and I came out and I was talking to my housemate who was doing VR back then. Shout out to Luna Yuan, miss you uh, for being my housemate and being the earliest believer in VR. And I explained to her like, oh, I was just using this app and, you know, Google Maps and just looking at Street View and looking around, you know, the, the landscape. And she was like, oh, you're traveling. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. You know, I was traveling. I mean, because I was traveling back home from uh, my bedroom. I was traveling to Jordan from my bedroom. I was traveling to Germany from my bedroom. I think the sense of presence and immersiveness that you get is really unbelievable and you have to try it in order to really understand it and believe it. The technology has only gotten better since then, obviously. And, you know, we see that everywhere, right? For me, the key insight is that next generation technology is adopted by the next generation. I remember as a kid that, you know, I grew up with really bad desktops, right? So there's like Pentium 1, Pentium 2, Pentium 3. And, you know, back then it was like amazing to have a gigabyte of memory space, and hard drive. And it was, wow, you had a graphics card and we would just tinker with our own PCs, right? My parents hated us playing desktop computer games, right? They hated us playing Utopia, which was a turn-based kingdom building simulation. They hated us playing Counter-Strike. They hated us playing StarCraft. My sister and I really bonded playing Half-Life together. And the truth is that she's always been a better first-person shooter than me. My parents and other older folks, when they play desktop games, they get motion sickness, they can't play it, they don't get a user interface. And guess what? That sounds very similar to virtual reality, right? Because my parents didn't understand computer games. But guess what? My parents' generation was the one that was building and eventually monetizing from me as a kid playing it. Now that I'm older, in my middle age, I recently went to the Dota 2 Championships right? We used to play this game called Warcraft 3. And basically there was a mod that basically made it into Defense of the Asians, right? Which was this creation of the game format. And we were weirdos who went to the computer gaming land cafes to play it in groups of friends. And, 
you know, our schools panicked about it. Our kids were like truants and escaping class to play it. Fast forward 20 years, right? And I'm in this stadium with tens of thousands of fans. There's million dollar prizes to be won for the grand championships. The two teams are walking in with their fireworks and people cheering, like sports teams. And I was looking at this esports thing. And I remember I was talking to my secondary school best friend. He was there with me and we used to play this game together, right? And you know, I kind of laughed and I said, hey, guess we nerds became cool, right? You know, the nerds became cool. And now it's it's a sport, right? It's an e-sport, right? Um, and now it's only getting more and more popular, right? Because we see that for mobile games. You know, I never really got into mobile gaming, but when I walk around, I can see that Generation Z, they're all using mobile games. That's the first introduction to gaming, actually, rather than desktop. And so now there's mobile gaming championships where people are fighting each other, winning prizes. And to me, that's kind of weird, right? Because I'm like, yeah, why would you play a mobile game when you can play desktop games, which are so much better with so much resolution? But, you know, there's always that generational gap, right? Which doesn't really make sense. The truth of the matter is that, guess what? It's us, right? I know friends who are working, right? At Epic Games and they are working at League of Legends. And they're the ones, our generation, millennials are the ones who are actually building the games for Generation Z to play these mobile games. Similarly, you know, a lot of folks don't understand TikTok. And myself, I grew up using Facebook and Instagram. And I think TikTok is just like one bound too far. It's too addictive for me. And I also don't want to use it. And so I'm not native to it. But folks of my age who are building this product for Generation Z to use TikTok, right? So coming to virtual reality, it's interesting because when I play virtual reality, I obviously play it maybe about once a month. For example, when I had COVID, I was in isolation. I was playing virtual reality. When I was during pandemic, with isolation, I was doing more VR. And I remember playing some great games, right? You know, obviously, it was like individual games, like Supernatural, which is basically like Dance Dance Revolution, but for fitness, which is a nice way to do a studio workout in some beautiful environments and with like great music. Uh, fantastic game. I remember I was playing Onward, which is like a military simulation game. There's Pavlov, which is basically Counter-Strike in VR. I was playing Demio, which is basically Dungeons & Dragons, a tabletop that you play with other folks in a social format. The thing that struck me, I remember, was that I was playing, and obviously there's other folks who are roughly my age, right? Millennials are playing because we can afford you know, VR. And there were kids. There were a lot of kids playing VR. And they were playing it naturally and they were really good at it. So I had this flashback to myself back as a teenager playing Counter-Strike with my sister. We were really good at it. And back then we didn't know each other's ages and we would write chat messages and we all pretend to be old or older than we were because nobody wanted to say like, hey, we're 12 or 13 or 14, right? And people would be like A slash L slash L, right? You know, age, sex, location, trying to figure out what age, what gender, what location you are. So, you know, obviously, you know, you're playing Counter-Strike in VR and you're getting cursed at by kids and you can hear like their parents in the background and some dog in the background. And you're just like thinking to yourself like, man, I'm getting crushed by these kids who have like faster than me, etc. So for me, I ended up drifting towards playing Onward, which is military simulation, which is, you know, rewards wisdom and patience, which thankfully as a middle-aged person, I have more of than a teenager. And of course, I have army training as well. So I play, it converts nicely to Onward as well. So from my perspective, the next generation always seems to be wasting their time on some newfangled tech. But it's the current generation who is working, which understands that language 
especially when it translates to cash. Our parents' generation, the boomers, made Pokemon, which became intensely popular across millennials and continues to be popular today. And I see Generation Z folks and Generation Alpha folks playing Pokemon using these mix between giant screens and malls, uh, some sort of like mobile phone integration and you know physical cards, and they're enjoying themselves, right? Um, the down arrow is that when it comes to virtual reality, the truth of the matter is that it's not going to be millennials that make VR popular. And it's not going to be Generation Z that makes it popular because they've already aged out of that adoption curve. My kids, Generation Alpha, will be VR native. They're going to grow up where virtual reality has always been there. They have always used virtual reality. And there'll be great experiences with each other with it. The most popular games and apps in virtual reality actually tend to be skewed younger, actually. And if you go there, it's a whole bunch of kids who are running around, talking to each other around the world, <laughs> learning to play poker in virtual reality because their parents don't know how to play poker or they don't teach them to play poker. And I'm just like watching from the side, right, in my virtual reality character. And I'm just like, wow, like this is the internet back when it used to be. Like, no control, no filters, back in the internet. So at the end of the day, is virtual reality dead? The answer is no. It's still alive. And it's alive in the hearts of Generation Alpha. And the ones who are going to use it the most and really drive it to peak usage would be Generation Alpha folks. And I think the ones who are going to be building and monetizing, a lot of the folks are really Generation Z who are going to make it happen. We see some of that adoption waves actually in Southeast Asia, where in the US, most gamers actually started off desktops, right? Because, or consoles, because, you know, that was the first wave of gaming and this is the predominant way. However, when I travel to the Philippines or Vietnam, there are so many people, both boys and girls, who are playing mobile games. Right? The mobile games can be cute, they can be violent, they can be narrative, they can be decision-making. Yet, what I see is that most of them are playing mobile games, not just on the move, but also at home. It does make me think about where VR is going to be most popular. Obviously, it's a function of purchasing power because it's expensive to buy, like a console. Um, it's also a function of gaming habits. It's a function of gaming properties and creators building for it. And, you know, there's a bunch of science fiction talking about how virtual reality takes time away from in-person time. And it's a joke, it's a dystopian trope. And the fact is, I have experienced it myself. I remember being unwell with a cough. I remember uh, having a cough, and so I had to stay home. I had to cancel my social commitments. And so I ended up playing Demio, which is, again, the Dungeons & Dragons in VR. I was playing with an American middle-aged adult. I was playing with a Chinese lady, uh, you know, at least based on a language and accent. And lastly, I was playing with a European guy. And so we were playing our various characters to solve, go through this campaign that was a DLC. And so I was playing for those two hours, right? And I finally got from the beginner stage all the way to level three and completed it. Had a lot of fun. 
And I was really excited when I finally completed the last boss. What I didn't realize was that two hours had passed <laughs> instead of like my 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes because it was so immersive and so fun and so social that I ended up you know, spending two hours in that and I had missed dinner with my kids. <laughs> so I ended up taking off my headset and shutting it down and I went down for basically the leftovers and everybody else had already dispersed. My kid was going for a bit time. I was like, oh, that's not exactly what I want, right? And so the next day I put my VR headset and I moved it from my bookshelf in front of me and I moved it into a closet and closed the door so I don't see it all the time. It's because I don't want to play so much VR because I have kids and I want to spend time and be present with them. I'm a middle-aged adult with a prefrontal cortex very big on producing, not consuming. I'm an early adopter. And yeah, I was absorbed and I loved the narrative of that campaign. Um, we're going to see more of those moments. I think folks who are in VR for not just two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours, and that's going to go up over time. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we go into the statistics from a product manager's perspective and probably see that similar to mobile games and other games, the truth is there's probably a bell curve of folks um, in terms of usage patterns, right? From least usage to you know moderate usage to high usage, right? But the high usage, I bet that they're spending a ton of time. It's like people playing World of Warcraft, right? I tried it a little bit and I was like, nope, that's not for me. But I had friends who were there pretty much that had their lives there. They played with their girlfriends and boyfriends there. They made the best friends there on World of Warcraft. You know, it's a desktop game with really bad cell count and you had to be a desktop you couldn't play with it it wasn't immersive it didn't have a easy voice and communications it didn't have the current understanding of human psychology and the reward loops that make games really fun slash addictive slash liberating i think vr is going to become more popular in the next generation and the popularity will also see the rise of whales folks who spend a lot more time than they would and I think that future, I think there will become a time where we'll see newspaper articles about folks who spend too much time in VR. And there'll be that debate, cultural and countercultural, about what the right usage is. That being said, I believe that VR can only get better computing, can get higher resolution, can get more compelling, right? With better narrative, social features, and even monetization hooks, right? And all those things will definitely make there be better production quality games and experiences and worlds. And that will also make it much more compelling for folks. The truth is I live in a pretty good life. And so I want to spend life in the real world with my kids, you know, with my wife at my work because I love my work. Yet there's so many people who are unhappy with where they live. They live in a small place. They don't have a great computer. They don't like their job. And, and those folks are the ones that are really going to see, I think, the the rise they're going to be the earliest adopters because the contrast between the real world and the VR world is going to be so much stronger and so much better, right? That will be an interesting future for us to live in and it's already coming and it's inevitable and it's already happening. I think for decades, we've laughed at the concept of hikomori, Japanese individuals who are social recluses, right? They live at home, they're highly introverted, they are withdrawn from society. And they're often heavy users of computer games and internet technology and online communication. From my perspective, this is only going to become 
more prevalent over time. On the bright side, even though they are from a physical world basis, more reclusive and more introverted, we may actually find that they have a much more vibrant social life than many of us do because they talk to 10, 20, 100, 1,000 people online. So I think the definition of hikomori is going to change over time and broaden. And I think it's going to be a very big debate about whether we should be, you know, hikomori shaming or hikomori positive. The one thing I'm also sure about as VR becomes more popular is that there'll be an increased countercultural phenomenon pushing back against VR, which is also, again, what we talked about, pushing back against AI and generative AI, which is that focus on in-person, that focus on humanity, the focus on authenticity. All those things will continue to be a very strong action by society against these forces of technology, virtualization, and online identities. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>